0: You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more.
1: Ever since he burst onto the Broadway scene in the 1990s, Frank Wildhorn has remained an intriguing figure in American musical theater. But Wildhorn's journey is far from a conventional success story. Nor was it a typical path to the Broadway stage. Because although he was born in the Harlem neighborhood of New York City in 1959, it would take him decades to finally come back here and make his mark. His first stop was Hollywood, Florida, at the age of 14, when his family moved there to help his ailing father avoid the harsh winters of New York. While in summer training for his high school football team, Wildhorn would tinker around on an organ in his family's garage. It sparked his curiosity, and he began reading and studying what he could, all about music and chord structure and theory. Okay, so I cut to
2: the end of the summer, Uh, football season is happening, and we had a piano in the house. My mom always played the piano. So I'm sitting one day and I'm playing the piano and and she comes home. She walks by and says, that's really nice. That's really good. Did you do that? Yeah. And she walks back into the kitchen and I hear a big crash and she dropped the groceries. (laughs) She came back out and said, you don't play the piano. (laughs) And I said, I don't know. I was playing the organ. Now I'm playing here. And she said, you know, I think you're making music. You know, So I think from the second my hands went on a keyboard, I was writing. I don't remember ever not writing.
1: So he joined a band. And throughout the early 1970s, Wildhorn would play in local bars and other places, including the strip club where they invented the wet t-shirt contest. <laughs> Interesting little fact. Fast forward to him attending Miami-Dade College for two years before transferring to the University of Southern California where he studied history and philosophy. Yet he had enough gumption to walk over to the School of Performing Arts and offer up his musical he'd written to the chairman of the drama department, who just so happened to be the famous actor and director, John Houseman. I went to his office and I said, listen, I wrote this
2: show. When I was in Miami, it's called Christopher. It's like Jesus Christ Superstar Part 8 from a Zen Buddhist point of view. Because, of course, that's what every Jewish kid was into back then. <laughs> I wrote the book, the music, and the lyrics, and I'm sure it was as awful as I remember. But, but for some reason, he, he took a liking towards me. And, and those years at USC, he produced or directed all of these you know projects of mine.
1: It was also during this time that he saw the play Dracula which sparked his imagination for other Victorian era stories like Robert Louis Stevenson's The Strange Tales of Jekyll and Hyde. In 1980, he co-wrote an original treatment of a Jekyll and Hyde musical with Steve Cuden, who was the USC master electrician on that Christopher production, which just so happened to have been seen by a rep from Chrysalis Records. That eventually resulted in an offer for a song publishing deal. This marked the beginning of a prolific songwriting phase in Wildhorn's career, yielding over 250 songs published and recorded by a wide variety of artists, such as Kenny Rogers, Sammy Davis Jr., Natalie Cole, and, of course, Whitney Houston, who recorded his biggest hit, Where Do Broken Hearts Go?, in 1987. And since I was and am a big fan of Whitney Houston, I have to point out the fact that this Wildhorn song became Whitney's seventh consecutive number one single, setting an all-time chart record on the Billboard Hot 100 in April of 1988. It beat the previous record of six consecutive number ones, held by the Beatles and the Bee Gees. And to this day, her record still stands. Okay, back to Frank Wildhorn. So, during all this pop song success he was having, he was only in his 20s, and was still writing musicals on the side. A second version of that musicalized Jekyll and Hyde was completed in 1986, and the musical was nearly produced on Broadway in 1988, with Terrence Mann set to star but the production never happened because investors backed out and withdrew funding prior to rehearsals. Not deterred by this setback, Wildhorn moved back to New York from Los Angeles in 1988, with the goal to write more original Broadway musicals than any other American composer. And so for the 15 years between 1995 and 2011, Wildhorn was a part of seven new Broadway musicals, an output unmatched by any other composer in that same period. The first of which was his Broadway debut by providing additional songs to Victor Victoria. Then came his own musicals Jekyll and Hyde and Scarlet Pimpernel in 1997, there was the Civil War in 1999, Dracula in 2004, and then Wonderland and Bonnie and Clyde in 2011. I'll tell you, this, the slow period was after Dracula. Dracula uh, meant a lot to me and
2: opened, I think it was in 2003 or four, and was a disaster. You know, it, it just didn't work. And uh, it took a while to get over that. But what happened was is there's a man named Freddie Gershon. Freddie Gershon owns a company called MTI, Music Theater International. He's kind of like my rabbi in my life. And, and he said, "Listen, Frank, but from Victor Victoria through Jekyll and, and Civil War and Pimpernel and Dracula, you had a lot of shows here in New York. You need a break, and they need a break from you, I think, as well. you know. And you are having a lot of success around the world right now with these Jekyll and Hydes. He said, "Why don't you actually go to them, go to these opening nights, meet the producers?" So I, I did I did do that, you know, and, and I discovered the world out there. Yeah.
1: And so in recent years, most of his new musicals have premiered in Europe and Asia. But among his Broadway musicals, three of them have appeared at the Marquee Theatre. Victor Victoria, Wonderland, and a 2013 revival production of Jekyll and Hyde. Now, Victor Victoria will actually get its own episode to close out the first season of this podcast. So this one is actually going to be a combo episode by covering the other two shows together. That's because they both share a lot in common. Wonderland and Jekyll and Hyde were both written by Wildhorn, both were based on famous literary stories, both were universally panned, and both of them ran for less than a month. Welcome to Closing Night a theater history podcast about famous and forgotten shows that close too soon. I'm Patrick Oliver-Jones, and I'll be your guide in this first season as we go through the ups and downs of one of Broadway's youngest venues, the Marquee Theater. These episodes will give a behind-the-scenes look at some of the shows that have come and gone from here and what led up to their closing night. Lewis Carroll's classic tale of Alice's adventures in Wonderland was first published in 1865 and became an immediate success with adults and children of all ages. In fact, the book has been translated into 174 languages and has never been out of print. Just 21 years after that first edition was published, A musical adaptation entitled Alice in Wonderland premiered on the West End in 1886. Carroll was heavily involved in the production and casting of the musical, even paying for actor costumes. That musical pantomime version remained widely popular for years in London, and the story itself has been adapted into numerous television and movie productions. However, it would be 124 years before another major musical adaptation was made of Alice's adventures. Enter Frank Waldhorn. For me, number one,
2: I really wanted to write a kid's piece, something for my kids. Um, I've written some pretty dark... (laughs) Sexy, nasty, you know, violent things over the years. And then, of course, Civil War, we went someplace else. But I really wanted to do something for my kids. And Jake, my younger son, who is so musical, I wanted him to be involved in the process and see the magic of theater happening. So believe it or not, that was actually one of the motivations of doing it.
1: The idea phase of Wonderland began in the late 1990s. And after that, he approached Judy Lisi, who was then head of the Tampa Bay Performing Arts Center, with four songs and a rough storyline. She felt a modern retelling of the fairy tale would be relatable to kids of all ages. That's when Wildhorn brought on his collaborators from the Civil War to join him in this project. Jack Murphy handled lyrics and book writing, and Gregory Boyd was the director and helped with the book as well. The original vision of Alice was similar to the one in Disney's famous 1951 animated feature. Only this time, Alice is now grown with a child of her own and must rescue her child from Wonderland and in so doing, rediscovers her own child within.
2: This show is about getting back in touch with the things that I really loved. This was about going back to my roots as a pop songwriter, being as honest and as real as I can. And that's been part of this journey that's made it so rich for me and and wonderful. And I hope that translates.
1: The musical was workshopped in Tampa in 2007, featuring Brandi Burkhardt in the title role. After rewrites and recasting, a reading of a new script took place in Manhattan in March of 2009, this time with Lauren Kennedy as Alice and Julia Murney as the Queen. And after several months, Wonderland, Alice's new musical adventure, went back to Tampa with yet another new cast, this time with Janet DeCall as Alice and Karen Mason as the Queen of Hearts. And, of course, revisions continue during rehearsals, leading up to the show's opening in November 2009 at the newly renamed Straz Center, and ran for six weeks. It then moved to a place near and dear to Wildhorn's heart, the Alley Theater in Houston, opening in late January, 2010. The book was rewritten after the Tampa engagement, and at the time of the Houston opening, Boyd said, quote, the book we have now is quite different from the book that opened in Tampa, and we're putting in more changes, including four new songs.
2: You know, shows like Jekyll and Hyde took 17 years from conception to, uh, to Broadway. And- This one, for all practical purposes, you know, has really been a train. And I think that's because we've learned so much along the way in the process. Every time we've put it in front of another audience, we've learned from that audience. And hopefully we've applied those lessons into our writing and into, you know, the further development of the piece.
1: I also want to point out that during this whole time of Wonderland's various readings and stagings and productions, Wildhorn and Murphy were also opening their musical Carmen in the Czech Republic and the Count of Monte Cristo in Switzerland. (laughs) Honestly, I don't know how Wildhorn has the time and energy to create all these shows simultaneously. Because the following year, Wonderland was back in Tampa, but this time for its official pre-Broadway run from January 5th to January 16th, 2011 with substantial changes to the book, recasting of roles, and additions to the score. Even the show title was revised and became Wonderland, a new Alice, a new musical. But from Tampa to Broadway laid many hurdles, the biggest of which is always money. Producers were about $10 million short of the $16 million they were trying to raise, with just a month to go before opening at the Marquee Theater. Now, mind you, none of Wildhorn's musicals have ever recouped their investment, so that was certainly a hindrance to raising the money. Then there were the mixed reviews in Tampa that didn't help either with the Tampa Tribune finding the show exciting and delightful, whereas the St. Petersburg Times said, The show is a visual
3: feast, with dazzling costumes, marvelously funky dance, and a flashy, high-tech production design. But Wonderland also has a problem. It makes almost no sense. The task of matching a coherent adaptation of Lewis Carroll's whimsical classic with Frank Wildhorn's catchy pop rock score remains elusive. I think that Wildhorn and his colleagues still have a way to go before it has a chance of success.
1: So then came more casting changes to three of the principal roles. And with a new lineup in place, it was time for Wildhorn and the cast to get in the studio.
0: Then we did the cast recording before we actually went to Broadway. So there's a lot of the music on the cast recording that is not even in the Broadway show that we actually settled on.
1: That's E. Clay Cornelius, who played the Caterpillar in the show, a role that was originally given to Titus Burgess. But along with all the cast changes happening before Broadway, there were also changes to the creative team. Oh, oh wait, correction. The producer said, quote, There are not going to be any changes to the creative team for the incoming production of Wonderland. Hmm. But they go on to acknowledge that Quote, friends of the production have been invited into some rehearsals to offer opinions on polishing certain sections of the show. Translation, director Scott Ellis was brought in to restage the production, and composer lyricist Rupert Holmes was there to rewrite it.
0: I ended up getting a new director. Uh, We got a new writer. So we were dealing with just a whole different theme when we got to New York. It was really weird, you know, and the whole team changed. Yep. First day of rehearsals, new script.
1: This transition to a new creative team and script prompted cast members to adapt quickly and find their rhythm within an evolving production. For Eclay, there was the added pressure and excitement of this being his first leading role on Broadway. But as I mentioned, this part wasn't originally his. So he had the extra challenge of making this role his own. He didn't want to just imitate Titus Burgess. <laughs> I mean, who can do that, right? So E. Clay and even his agent voiced concerns about the song's suitability for his particular vocal style and talents. Well, Wildhorn is never one to walk away from a chance to write more music, so he and Murphy came up with a basic outline of a new song.
0: And they said, Clay, we want you to come into this room. They sat me down and they said, here are the lyrics. We want you to just start singing. And they were like, this is what we're thinking as far as like the melody. I started singing that. And what became that song is everything that I did in that room at that time, just singing the words. And I came up with the actual song with Frank Wildhorn and the writer, the advice from a caterpillar, the one you're hearing on the album. So that was really incredible that I actually got to create and make a song with. Frank Wildhorn and the writer,
1: Jack. While some changes like E. Clay's song improved aspects of the show, others added confusion and strain to an already demanding process. With the Broadway opening date looming, the mounting pressure to present a finished product prevented the creators from the necessary time to truly assess and adjust the show. As a result, Wonderland remained in a state of constant flux throughout the preview period.
0: Like we were just so nervous every single night because we were getting just different stuff every single day. So, you know, some of those previews is literally preview of a new scene or a new song or a new something or other, which changed almost every single day. That was like one of the most insane processes of of my lifetime. But it was very, you know, I learned a lot from that.
1: As the show itself was coming together, so did the funding for the production. And Wonderland opened on time, April 17, 2011. But I guess you could say the cast had mixed feelings about the show. While they recognized the talent within the cast and gave their best on stage to make the show successful, they also knew it was now in the hands of audiences, and especially the critics. As with most Wildhorn musicals, the audiences were fairly positive about the show, with an average rating of 7 out of 10 according to Broadway World. But on the other hand, like most Wildhorn musicals, the critics were disparaging and savage, giving it not even 3 stars out of 10. Bloomberg News was the nicest review, saying, "...it isn't the most original or coherent musical, but it's light on its feet and a nice option for kids. Entertainment Weekly admitted, there is some inspiration at work in Wonderland. But to quote the White Rabbit, it's just sad. Backstage said it was a failed production and the New York Post called it Blunderland. But then there was the New York Magazine. Wonderland is the worst kind of nonsense. The sort that attempts
3: little and achieves less. Turgid with its own emptiness, this unctuously charmless show is proof that nothing from nothing somehow equals less than nothing. No ironic cutaway or wink is too dated for this show, even by Broadway's forgiving standards. It sounds piped in from Hell's very own Light FM station.
1: Unfortunately, regardless of all the changes to script and score, and despite the efforts of the cast and the new and old creatives... Wonderland faced a swift closure on Broadway. It ended May 15th, 2011, after 30 previews and 33 regular performances.
0: So we found out um, on a Tuesday that we are closing on Sunday. So that's how much time I've had to even process that. Like, now I have to do eight these eight shows, and they're going to be my last eight shows, and never having that happen to me before. Like, oh, now I'm out of work, and I had all these hopes of collecting money over the summer or, or for the year and in my first leap role. And now what am I going to do kind of a thing? So, you know, all of those things were in my brain. And, and it was very frustrating. And it was a very bitter, sweet moment.
1: It's interesting to note that while half the principals, including E. Clay, would eventually go on to do other Broadway shows, for the other half, Wonderland represents the last show they performed on Broadway. Such is the transient and elusive nature of the theater profession, especially on Broadway. I mean, look at Frank Wildhorn. He faced challenge after challenge, not just with Wonderland, but most all of his shows. And yet, he kept coming back to Broadway time and time again. And after the break, we'll talk about Wildhorn's return to Broadway with a revival of his most successful and well-known show, Jekyll and Hyde. Jekyll and Hyde represents the bookends of Wildhorn's theater career in New York, his first original musical on Broadway, and a revival production that remains the last time he was on The Great White Way. The show almost made its debut in 1988, the same year Wildhorn relocated to New York from Los Angeles. And with that move, he essentially put his pop music career behind him and became very focused on musical theater. As I mentioned in the opening, Jekyll and Hyde began in 1980 with librettist Steve Cuden. However, it ended that decade with a different one, Leslie Bricus, famed composer and lyricist who wrote the soundtrack to one of my favorite movie musicals, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, in 1971. Not to mention his work on Broadway throughout the 1960s and 70s as well. While Cuden retained both co-lyrics and co-conceptual credits on Jekyll and Hyde, it would be Wildhorn and Brickus that would complete a finalized version of the musical in 1990. It tells the story of a gentle Dr. Jekyll who experiments on himself to discover a cure for his father's mental illness, and in so doing, changes into the animalistic Mr. Hyde. The duality of his love life also plays out as he's caught between the love of his fiance Emma and a lady of the evening, Lucy. Since their first attempt to bring the musical to Broadway failed, for the second time around, Wildhorn and Brickus chose a similar route that Andrew Lloyd Webber used early on in his career, the concept album. But he needed two singers to play the title role and Lucy. Having watched Linda Etter win the TV singing contest, Star Search, and having heard Combe Wilkinson in Les Mis, Wildhorn found the two singers he wanted for his album. Also in 1990, Jekyll and Hyde finally had its world premiere at the Alley Theater in Houston, Texas, where it broke box office records, played to sold-out houses, and won acclaim from critics, leading the run to be extended twice. That production featured Chuck Wagner in the title role. Sometime after that, Wildhorn and Brickus actually lost the rights to Jekyll and Hyde for a short while. But that was eventually cleared up and the two continued to forge ahead with edits and rewrites and the making of a second concept album. This two-CD set was put together in 1995, this time with Anthony Warlow in the title roles, and was dubbed the complete work of Jekyll and Hyde. It's also notable for featuring Broadway legend John Raitt in the last cast recording he ever made. And we put a tour together, a pre-Broadway tour, with no stars. Very
2: interesting thing to do. But people loved the show, and they gave us the money to do it, and it was the highest-grossing tour that year. It's really what started making Bob Cuccioli a star, and really Linda, you know, a star in the theater.
1: As the show was touring the country, rewrites continued, including changing the name of Jekyll's fiance. Now, this happened midway through the first national tour, when they decided to better differentiate between Lucy the prostitute and Lisa the Fiancé. And so, to make her sound more upper-class, they changed it from Lisa to Emma. Both the tour and that second concept album were so successful that they had actually financed the eventual Broadway run, which opened on March 21, 1997. Here's what Variety magazine had to say about it. Jekyll and Hyde
3: has half the personality of its title character, and it's the dour, humorless half. Despite a handful of big-bodied pop ballads that push their way through the dense operatic score, this much-traveled and revised musical quickly settles into a self-serious sameness that pretty much drains the well-known horror tale of whatever guilty pleasures lurk within.
1: This was pretty indicative of the many critical reviews of the show, which has been a theme throughout Wildhorn's Broadway career. Nonetheless, the production received multiple Tony Award nominations, including Robert Cuccioli for his performance of the title character, along with costume and lighting design. And Wildhorn may have been left out of the mix, but his writing partner, Leslie Bricus, was nominated for Best Book of a Musical. The Broadway cast recording was also nominated for a Grammy Award. Throughout its run, a host of big names took over the title role, like Jack Wagner and Sebastian Bach, But probably the most memorable and unlikely was television star David Hasselhoff, who joined in October 2000 and was with the show until it closed in January 2001. One of the great funny anecdotes about uh, This Is The Moment is that the producers, the original Broadway
2: producers, wanted to cut the song because they said, yeah, it's a great song. They said, but it stops the action. You don't really need it. He could just drink the stuff and get on with the show. And we said, (laughs) we fought the good fight and we won that one, thank God, that uh, the the song stayed in the show.
1: Ultimately, Jekyll and Hyde defied critical opinions and enjoyed a robust Broadway run, ending with a total of 1,543 regular performances. But despite the long run, the musical only recouped about 75% of its initial $7 million investment and closed at a loss. Another theme that has followed Wildhorn throughout his career as well. However, it did outlast all of its fellow shows that opened in the 1997-98 season, fueled by a loyal fan base affectionately known as Jackie's, leading it to become the longest-running show in Plymouth Theatre history. Wildhorn also made history during this time for having three of his shows on Broadway at the same time. Jekyll and Hyde, The Scarlet Pimpernel, and The Civil War. It's a distinction he shares with Andrew Lloyd Webber, who would ultimately go on to have four shows running at the same time. The first to accomplish that since Rodgers and Hammerstein had their own Broadway takeover in the summer of 1953.
2: You know, a lot of things have to align. Luck has so much to do with all of this stuff. You know, whether when you write a number one song, you know that's not might not be the best song you ever wrote. But so many things had to align for that to happen: the right artist, at the right time, when nothing else in that genre is out there, when that artist is the priority of the record company, so money is thrown to that. I mean, there's so many things. Same thing here. You know, Jekyll and Hyde. Thank God, you know, had a five year run, so it was running for a while. And Scarlet Pimpernel came very fast on the heels of, of, of Jekyll and Hyde. And then Civil War came on the heels of that. So, you know, know, we had all three and it was a wonderful time. And, you know, the the streets in New York were
1: ours. Wildhorn actually mentions Jekyll and Hyde having a five-year run on Broadway in several interviews I read or watched. The actual timeline was three years and almost nine months. But considering the national tours that happened before and after the original Broadway opening, this particular incarnation of Jekyll and Hyde did last more than five years. So we'll let his exaggeration slide. But never one to be content, though, Wildhorn revisited this gothic musical in 2006 with his Resurrection recording. And again in 2012 with yet another concept album this time with American Idol finalist Constantine Maroulis, R&B diva Deborah Cox, and longtime Alphabet actress Teal Wicks. These three performers, along with director-choreographer Jeff Calhoun, would also be leading yet another national tour of Jekyll and Hyde that would travel around North America on its way back to New York City. The journey began with rehearsals in New York in August of 2012 before going to La Mirada Theatre for the Performing Arts. There, the cast and crew spent three intensive weeks in rehearsals and performances before officially kicking off the tour in San Diego. Both Marullas and Cox are certainly known for their big, powerful voices, but these pop singers have paid their dues on the stage as well. Maroulos was a replacement for Sammy in The Wedding Singer and starred in the original company of Rock of Ages, for which he received a Tony nomination. And for Cox, her Broadway debut came when she was asked to pick up the title role in the closing months of Elton John and Tim Rice's Aida. And she'll also be starring in the forthcoming Broadway revival of The Wiz, which is currently set for April 2024. Not a lot of people are familiar with our acting backgrounds uh, individually, but we both grew up as, as actors and not only just, you know, uh, recording artists and whatnot, but she, uh, she's wonderful and she gives me so much on stage and, and really the whole ensemble is tremendous. We have a, a great group of veteran actors and stars in their own right and believe me, if you heard all of them sing individually, you, you know, you'd be blown Absolutely away by blown. them all as well. Despite the many years of history that come with Jekyll and Hyde, this tour was essentially a new production, with only a general blueprint of what came before. Marulus and Cox hadn't seen the original production, nor were they that familiar with its various incarnations. So they approached the show with a freshness that allowed them to go in new directions without feeling tied to what came before. Director and choreographer Jeff Calhoun also approached this version with fresh eyes. He had been at the helm of another Wildhorn musical, the short-lived Bonnie and Clyde. But he followed that up with a 2012 Tony nomination for Best Direction of Newsies. So maybe he had something to prove with this revival production of Wildhorn's best-known musical. I would say it's a production where I've surrounded myself with people at the top of their games. I think I have the best design team right now. We have three actors that were born to play these roles, and hopefully we're doing justice to one of Frank Wildhorn's best scores and Leslie Bricus's wonderful book and and lyrics. Taking a suggestion from his scenic and costume designer, Calhoun deployed modern video elements that would put more emphasis on the scientific and technical aspects of the Victorian era rather than its social etiquette and orthodoxy. He also convinced Wildhorn and Brickus to trim a few ballads that had led the story astray into non-essential tangents, so they shed some of the show's more melodious elements in favor of enhancing its dramatic aspects, with Brickus also incorporating additional spoken dialogue to infuse more character and humor into the musical. The creators also reintegrated two songs that were originally a part of the 1990 version, but had subsequently been removed from the score. And having singers from the rock and R&B worlds gave Wildhorn a lot to play with, in hopes of bringing out better performances and creating a more natural connection to the characters and their story. For example, most of the leading men before had been baritones. But now, with a rock tenor and marulas, Wildhorn expanded the range and harmonies to match. The same went for Cox, giving Lucy a richer, more soulful and sexy sound. Well, there's some new songs that were added that weren't
3: in the original production. Songs like I Need to Know, Bring on the Men. Um, This is a little sexier, edgier, a little darker kind of vibe. And um, the songs and the orchestrations have been kind of tailor-made to our voices. Uh, So we've brought our own heart and soul and have made this more of a revisal.
1: As a singer and songwriter herself, Cox could appreciate the hard work being done to not only bring this score back to the stage, but to expound upon it as well, to tell this story in a new, edgier way. But one thing remained the same the vocal demands of this musical on its lead actors.
2: Jekyll and Hyde is a little bit like the Olympics of singing. You, you know, you, you've got to be on your game and you've got to have some incredible and unusual gifts to do Jekyll and Hyde. And ask anybody who has played Jekyll and Hyde or anybody who's played Lucy and they'll tell you that.
1: the show wound its way across North America, tweaks were still being made, especially by Calhoun. He would visit the production at various points along the tour as a way to consistently address previous critiques of the show's lack of nuanced characterizations. So he and the team actively worked on refining this aspect throughout the tour. For example, after a scene rehearsal during their Los Angeles stop, Calhoun worked with Maroulis and Cox to find specific moments between Jekyll and Lucy. How might this encounter affect her soul? Why would Jekyll be drawn to Lucy despite being engaged to a proper Victorian fiancé? These gradual developments of connection were always part of the plan for producer Nick Scandalius. He laid out this seven-month tour as an extended exploration period, giving ample time for the revival and its lead actors to develop characters, experiment, and refine their performances.
3: It's different because I'm a part of uh, a big show telling a story, so I have to stay in in um, within the theme of what the show is saying and talking about. Concerts are a little more, I can manipulate it a bit more because it's, you know, a set, you know, six, seven songs or whatever, and I have a band and... Mm-hmm. So it's different, but um, this is much more fun because, you know, it's a great cast, a great crew, it's um, amazing songs, amazing, amazing music, and it's a thrilling, you know, opportunity every single night to be in front of an audience and orchestra.
1: One of the more notable changes was made to The Confrontation, a rather demanding and challenging song for any actor who must go back and forth between singing as Jekyll and then as Hyde in the same song. In essence singing a duet with himself, which led to much confusion and even derision from critics in the original production. With this new iteration, the duet structure remains, however, Jekyll would now be confronting a pre-recorded Hyde in the form of a risable series of projections on the back wall. You know, I think it's still a bit of a process for us. We were in a rehearsal room like eight, nine weeks ago. Um, So we're still sort of like figuring some things out. This must have been a very different kind of national tour for this cast. When I did The Addams Family and Evita, we rehearsed for six weeks. And then once we opened in our first city, it was simply a matter of maintaining the show at each and every stop. But for Jekyll and Hyde, their tour was one long rehearsal of constant adjustments and notes and edits to a show that was gearing up for its real opening on Broadway with a limited three-month run at the marquee. For cast members like Teal Wicks, I'm sure they were ready to finally be done with that 27-week tour.
2: Oh, it's, uh, it's great. Uh, it's kind of like a huge sigh, not a relief, but just a big, I feel like we've been running and going and being on tour and sort of our breath has been slowly getting held up and now we can just kind of breathe and embrace it all and it's it's incredible it's been it was a really great night.
1: So, with a new concept, new leads, new songs and new technical elements, what did New York think of this Jekyll and Hyde revival that opened on April 18th, 2013? where better to start than with the new york times who said let us give a warm welcome back or maybe just a shrug a sigh and a tip of the bowler hat to the return of jekyll and hyde unfortunately there's no way to digitally airbrush away the hokum that pervades this whole show other critics gave the same sort of shrug and sigh to the show as well the hollywood reporter said it's akin to a well-designed haunted house from which you find yourself eagerly longing to escape. While the Associated Press warned that these Frank Wildhorn songs will make your ears bleed, and sarcastically added, who cares if there's way too much lighting and overacting? Chris Caggiano, a professor at the Boston Conservatory of Music, attended a press performance and wrote about his experience.
3: The audience was largely composed of voters from the various award processes for New York theater, drama desk, Outer critic critics' circle, etc. I could tell the folks seated around me were having the same visceral reaction I was to the proceedings. Toward the end of the show, the character, John, Jekyll's friend, confronts Jekyll with a sword to prevent Jekyll from harming the members of the wedding party. Please, Jekyll says, seemingly inviting John to run him through. Set us free! The section of the audience where I was sitting, as if on cue, erupted into laughter. Yes, please, we seem to say. Put us all out of our misery.
1: Most critics, though, did applaud Maroulis, Cox, and Wicks for their vocals, while the show itself barely got a single clap. But then there were the audiences, especially the Jackies. Who loved the darker and edgier and sexier version of Wildhorn's classic gothic tale? From the beginning, I was just blown away. It was
0: very powerful, all the songs were very dramatic. I actually got goosebumps when they were singing and every single person in our row was bravo, bravo. I'm um, being honest, it was a little bit sexier. They got a little like Fifty Shades of Grey into it. I'd never seen it before uh, and I was kind of blown away. Deborah, every song she sang like had the crowd like wanting to stand up and scream for her. <laughs> Jekyll and Hyde.
1: But there just weren't enough of these enthusiastic theater gores to keep the show running. After two weeks of previews and just two weeks into its limited engagement, this revival had yet to hit the $500,000 mark in ticket sales, with a dismal 48% audience capacity. And just to add a dash of salt to the wound, the show was completely shut out from Tony Award nominations. So producers decided to make Jekyll and Hyde's limited run even more limited, and announced that they would be closing seven weeks early on May 12, 2013, with just 15 previews and 30 regular performances. But Jekyll and Hyde as a show is actually anything but a flop due to its wide appeal in regional theaters in the U.S., as well as elsewhere in Europe and Asia, which is now where Wildhorn focuses most of his attention and creative efforts, having opened numerous new musicals as well as his back catalog in other countries to much broader acclaim and appeal.
2: By the way, the lifestyle of writing for Europe with 40, 50 piece orchestras. And you know, you can't do that here. And and Asia, you know, where Jekyll and Hyde was six years in Tokyo and and Jekyll and Hyde is still in South Korea. It's still there, I mean, it's been years. And, And so the world opened up and that became a new adventure.
1: And so Wildhorn's success is in large part due to that failure with Dracula, which caused him to find greener and more receptive pastures elsewhere. It's a stark example of learning from setbacks, and making lemonade from what critics have called his lemons. Even his demeanor and personality. I mean, in every interview I watched in researching this episode, Wildhorn had a smile, an ease, and an excitement for what he was talking about. He obviously loves what he does and the life that he's built for himself. And so it's interesting that this smiley, mild-mannered man can create work that ignites such visceral love-hate relationship among critics, and to a lesser degree with audiences. Critics may decry his recurrent use of cliches, the stereotypical portrayals of women, the bombast of his scores, and the formulaic love triangles as persistent flaws in his musicals. Yet the paradox lies in the undeniable allure of Wildhorn's music, the soaring melodies and vibrant compositions that captivate even those critical of his narrative choices. But regardless of what the critics have said, with each version and concept, Wildhorn recognizes that it was Jekyll and Hyde that put him on the map and will forever be his legacy as a musical composer.
2: And it's the gift that keeps giving. But it meant so much, and it still means so much to my life. And so many people on Broadway started in Jekyll and Hyde. And I believe Jekyll and Hyde will be looked at very differently as the years go on. Because in some ways, it really was the first show you know, to take a pop musical vocabulary and theater and combine them. You know, Of course, there was it was hair and things like that. There were really pop rock scores put into a theatrical context. But I think Jekyll and Hyde in time will, 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 will prove some some interesting things, and we'll see, you know I'm, I'm optimistic.
1: A transcript and full list of the numerous resources and materials used in this episode, you'll find a link to that in the show notes. A special thank you goes to E. Clay Cornelius for his insights into the bumpy road that brought Wonderland to Broadway. Closing Night is a production of Win Me Media. I'm Patrick Oliver-Jones, host and executive producer, Dan Delgado is editor and producer, not only for this podcast, but also for his own movie podcast called The Industry. Theme music for Closing Night composed and created by Blake Stadnik and co-producer is Maria Clara Ribeiro. Be sure to join us next time as another production makes its way to Closing Night.